Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Amen. All right, we're in Acts chapter 1 tonight. Uh, you can find that in your Bibles. For me, it's on page one here. Let me say this before we even start in on the book of Acts. Reading through and studying the Bible, it's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt. And in the book of Acts, when we're talking about how church operates, I've never gone through the book of Acts and not been convicted about something. So this is like either a church unifier in grace or it's a church divider because it's like, we're not doing that thing. And whatever that thing is, that shiny thing you're looking for, you will find it in the book of Acts because this is the premier example of what a church looks like. And you get the missions of Paul where you're starting to see how that church life acts in the life of the individual. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to spend a little more time in Acts chapter 1 because there's a lot of setup. First of all, we know Luke is a doctor. Thanks for praying that. I like that there's one writer in the Bible that actually has degrees. Otherwise, like you could argue that anyone with a degree is disqualified from being a, an apostle or a minister. So thankfully, at least one out of the many that Jesus calls and uses is somebody with a degree, which shows that someone with a degree can humble themselves to actually learning and understanding the Word of God. So there's that. Colossians 4.14, if you want to know where I got the whole doctor thing, uh, Paul calls him beloved physician. I love this guy. I love this doctor. And... And then we start the book of Acts chapter 1. The former account I made. He starts with those words, which means, shoot, now I got to go back. Okay, what's the former account? If you haven't been here before, the book of the Gospel of Luke is part one of a two-part work. What splits them is the size of the scroll. Greek books are just becoming popularized in the history of the world. So most of the biblical texts have some limits, which is about 30 meters of paper that gets rolled out. So the book of Luke and the book of Acts each fit on one of those scrolls if you write in really tiny letters. So in this, the other piece is that the, the book of Acts intentionally mirrors the language of the Old Testament in the Greek, the Septuagint. When Luke writes, he uses phrases, and his intention as a writer when he writes this, when he says, the former account I made, it's a way of writing that's unique to the Old Testament Greek. It's like when people in today's day and age use thee and thou when they start praying, right? So Luke writes in that style. He writes in a style that fits the sacred history of the people that are reading the Greek Old Testament. A lot of mirroring language that we're going to see. And here's the other piece. Luke and Acts are an attempt on the part of the author to write history. It's not fantastical. It's surgical. It's not saying here's the stories people told. Here's the documented witness accounts that I've recorded. And the tone of Luke always fits into that scholarship mold. And what he's trying to record is something that's, as a scientist, he's trying to record something that's not scientific in the natural world. How do you do that? How do you record a miraculous series of events, but put them in language that's within his discipline and within his order? So the intro of this is go, you got to go way back to the Gospel of Luke. Very beginning of Luke, Luke 1.1. 1, 1 insomuch as I've taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, 
just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them us. You see how he's setting up a scholarly article here or a piece? This is where I got my data. This is where I got my information. Verse 3 of Luke, it seemed good to me also having a perfect understanding, a full understanding of all the things from the very first to write you an orderly account, most excellent. That's a, a, a Roman word for someone who has a high office. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. There's somebody who's wealthy, he's got a high position, and Luke has been paid by this Theophilus to go do this work, and Luke is doing this work on behalf of Theophilus. It could be that Luke is writing a defense for Paul in Rome. Because the, 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 the record of Acts kind of ends right up where Paul's about to go to court. So this could be the court records that were written, which is why they were documented, why they were recorded. But he says, O Theophilus, and then gives him this title, Luke has a benefactor. He's being paid to do this. Um, which is another thing. One of the four gospel writers was actually paid to do it. And this is an interesting thing because people get into discussions about if there should be payment in the ministry or not payment in the ministry. And thankfully, the Bible has it going both ways. And so there's arguments going both directions. Physicians were often educated people and they were trained in more than just medicine. So the educated Roman would be trained in a lot of different things. Later on, this becomes Renaissance Italy. And they prided people who knew a lot about a lot of different fields. The body of knowledge was such that you could become a master of two, three different disciplines. And there were people who knew how to read and write, which made them valuable whatever. Most doctors in the Roman world were slaves. Again, our word slave, and when we hear the word slave, all we think of is the South prior to, you know, 1860s. When they heard the word slave, it was somebody who worked for a head of a household, and they weren't family members. So Luke was obviously or, or arguably a slave of Theophilus, a benefactor that he worked for, and Theophilus said, I need you to go out on a mission and do this job. Record the history and document it and get it to be there. Um, this was common in the Roman world. A wealthy person would send out their higher trained servants. We would say today employees. And they'd say, this is your task. This is your job. Go do it. And then put some trust in it. The word Theophilus means God lover. Some people argue, well, it might be that Luke's writing to all God lovers here. I think that's a stretch. The way it is there in the Greek and in your Bible, it should be a capital T, Theophilus. It's being used as a proper noun. And so someone is named God lover. On the same token, a lot of the early Christians started changing their names, right? So Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul. A lot of these people were taking names and they were naming themselves things that would help them with evangelism. What's your name? Guy that loves Jesus. And they would use those kinds of names in order to start conversations. We today, we wear t-shirts. So Luke will meet Paul later on, chapter 16, and the narrative of Acts will change from a historical recording to the first person narrative. Academically, that's way, the way for Luke to cue to his readers, okay, now I'm one of the witnesses and I'm bearing uh, testimony to this. So he changes his, his, uh, his tone. Uh, plenty of time for Luke to do this with Paul sitting in a jail cell. There's no problem with Luke traveling all the way to Jerusalem, getting those records, traveling to Crete, traveling to Cyprus, traveling to Ephesus, Galatia. There would be absolutely plenty of time for this to happen. Paul was in jail for years before he was killed. So here's where we pick up an axe. A summary of the main points of the Gospel of Luke. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach 
of all that Jesus began, I just, again, every line of this book, oh my goodness, are we ever going to get through it? Here's the heart of Luke. What Jesus did was a beginning. This is important. This is, Jesus started a thing. That's the book of Acts. Yeah, he, he was awesome. He was God incarnate. He died for our sins. He rose again. He testified to people. But the important thing is he began a thing that's still going on today. And this is great. Again, it's fun and games until somebody gets hurt. We're reading about our area of history. It's a lot easier to read about the kings and the judges and how they screwed it up and what a mess they made of everything. You get into Acts and now we have to talk about how we're making a mess of everything. Right? Because this is our era. We're responsible for this. And when, when in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they read the word of what they were responsible for in their era, they all broke down in tears. Like, oh my goodness, we're missing the mark horribly. And they repented when that happened. So again, just a precursor to the book of Acts. The gospel then is the beginning of a ministry that's still going on today. The ascension was not the end. It was the start. And Luke uses that language. All of that uh, is an attempt for him to be comprehensive. Acts is not necessarily um, held to that standard. There are major churches that Luke doesn't even mention in the book of Acts that we know are major churches because of letters that Paul wrote. So Luke's effort here is to be comprehensive in how the church got built, but not a comprehensive history of all of the churches that got started. Does that make sense? So just the intent of the writer a little bit. The function of Acts is to tie everything together. It actually ties together and legitimizes a lot of Paul's epistles. It becomes a second source to say, okay, we can see that they're using the same terms and language. Uh, it is how the church grew and how it spread. And so that question of, okay, why don't we have a church, church like Acts comes up. It does in my heart. I ache for it. And you think, man, to whatever degree we can reflect that kind of church, that's where my aching heart will find its hope, is that we can become a glimmer of this. From AD 33, the resurrection, to 61 AD, uh, was this period of time, uh, roughly 20, well, not roughly, 28 years that Luke records in the book of Acts. 28 years where they went from 12, or actually 11, we'll kick Judas off, they went from 11 people to 120 people to thousands of people to actually reaching the gates of, of, of Caesar himself. How did that happen in 28 years? That's one lifetime. And this is kind of 28 years later, Theophilus is like, okay, Luke, you need to write this down. This is so amazing how God works through this period of history. There needs to be a record of it. We know that it wasn't written after AD 64 because that's when Nero went nuts, right? So according to what we see in Luke, we don't see Nero as nuts yet. So Jesus started it. The followers carry it forward. The church grows, and it's still the era we live in today until Jesus returns. And we have this gap of time that we don't know how long it is. So a record of the work of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke, continued through to the disciples, the book of Acts or the gospel of Acts, right? It's the good news of Acts. Uh, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. So Jesus, until the day he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We see this a lot in the Bible. This is a big summary of this section of the book. So that's everything he's about to describe. He threw the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus lived fully human, incarnate human. He made that point in Luke. 
and he was led by the Holy Spirit and powered by it. How does someone get led by themselves? So this Trinity idea gets odd, um, but the Trinity is buried in here, and it's, it's part of it. Acts is going to be a book about how we as followers live with the Holy Spirit leading us. How does that happen? And our first example of that is Jesus limited his powers to be led by the Holy Spirit. And the, Holy, the disciples were amazed because he did miracles. And Jesus was like, you're going to do even bigger miracles than this. Like, I'm just giving you an example of how to be led by the Holy Spirit. And there's actually power in the Holy Spirit. So the first mention of the Holy Spirit is not in the book of Luke. It was also in Psalm 51.11. It's two times in the book of Isaiah and scores of times in the New Testament, which tells us something. The Holy Spirit as an idea was not as prevalent in the Old Testament, but it was there. And it was often represented by a visible Shekinah glory or a cloud. And following the Holy Spirit, we're going to see early on the disciples start to do things that look like the Old Testament, but they're led into things that look like today's church. And there's a training that goes on here that Luke's going to show it to us. So Jesus taught them this Trinity idea because after Jesus taught, the idea of a Holy Spirit, a Father, and a Son becomes manifest in the church, not three, four hundred years later. It's manifest in the church within 28 years, within one lifetime of the church. And it's written by Luke, who's going out and getting eyewitness testimonies. There is no telephone game being played here. These are ideas that are original to the church. I'm so grateful we have Acts because we know they're original to the church, right off the bat. If Jesus did his ministry through the Holy Spirit, the idea is we too are able to do ministry in the Holy Spirit. We are not above our master. We're not better than Jesus. And if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit and to be led by it, then we do too. The other phrase Luke uses here, did you see that? Many infallible proofs. I like this one. Being a researcher, I like looking for proofs. And in fact, apologetics is a study of looking for proofs. Luke simply means here that there were witnesses and recordings, interviews, and that were written that had 100% agreement. They were infallible. They did not contradict one another. The 11 people he interviewed called the disciples, the 100 or so he interviews that were that early group, the women that were with Jesus, everybody Luke mentions have the same story to tell. They just use different words. Infallible. And which means it would hold up in a courtroom. That's the word he's using. Again, Luke's surgical with his words. He uses the word witnesses. Paul shows that these witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15, he lists not only Cephas or Cleopas, which Luke mentioned, one of the first two on the road that saw Jesus, but 500 people at once, James, and even showing up to Peter and showing up to Paul. And Luke has some of those. Luke, Paul tries to give a full list. Over 500 people saw Jesus at, 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 after the resurrection. And they were infallible, no contradictions between them. This is powerful evidence that non-believers love to just skim over, but Luke doesn't feel the need to write an entire book about the apologetics of Jesus rising from the dead. He does it in one sentence. The only reason you do something in one sentence as a historian is if you know that your readers aren't arguing about that point. I'm going to write a book about World War II. It happened in 1945. I don't need to argue that the event happened because everybody knows it happened. Actually, it's being debated right now. You wouldn't believe revisionist history. But yes, there was, a, there was a World War II, and Luke's writing that way here. Yes, he rose with many infallible truths, and people saw him for over 40 days. The coolest part about this is it's happening again. 
I don't know if you're tracking the news right now, but there are people seeing Jesus and claiming they've had dreams and visions about Jesus in Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, and even the Gaza Strip. Thousands are coming to Jesus in the last few months because they're seeing Jesus and Jesus is telling them, follow me. Like, this is awesome. It's what happened in China about 30, 40 years ago. And China just had a church blow up out of nowhere. And the government doesn't even know what to do with these people. Just joyfully singing songs and reading the Bible together. Like, all over the world, this is happening. And if we don't share the gospel, Jesus will show up and do it himself. He did it then for 40 days. He's still doing it today. Again, we're going to see a lot of this in Luke. There's power that's in this. So Luke uses these three tools. He uses witnesses, he uses facts, and he uses power. And those three things bear evidence to what's going on in the book of Acts. If you struggle to believe some of these things, those are his three tools. The witnesses, tons of them. The facts, there's no revered tomb. There's an explosion of hope, not despair. There is the threat of death on everyone who follows Jesus, yet a fellowship of love that doesn't care. These are facts. Debating the resurrection is something that you would do for children. It's not worthy of a thinking adult. That was not the debate then, and it's really not the debate now. I can doubt that Joe Biden exists, and you could sit and argue with me about it, but that would be a childish argument. And did Jesus rise from the dead? Let's be honest. We sometimes humor ignorant people over that discussion, but it's the discussion of a childish person that doesn't look at evidence and accept it as we see it. Luke in the book of Acts was not being written to promote something. It was being written to record something that happened. Again, we can look at Luke's intro to, to his own book, The Gospel of Luke, and we could look into his intro, intro for the book of Acts. Being seen for 40 days. 40 days of recorded, witnessed resurrection events. Everything God ever does in history throughout the scriptures is publicly displayed. When he pulled the people out of Egypt, Everybody saw it. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't in a closet. It wasn't up on some mountain in the Himalayas. It wasn't in somebody's basement or closet, and there weren't secret golden tablets. There were stone tablets that had to be written twice for all of the nation of Israel to see. Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel, everything God's done in history has been public. And Luke's argument here reflects that. He was seen by them during 40 days. Again, the idea of 40 days. What does 40 days look like in the Bible? It's a period of trial and testing. It consistently, 40 days, means trial and testing. Jesus takes this number and he makes it a number instead of trial, testing, and death. With Jesus, it becomes a number of hope and resurrection and life. He changes the meaning of 40. I just think this is wonderful. Of, of a life counter in this sense, 40 days of rain with Noah in Genesis 7 gets counteracted by 40 days of a resurrected Jesus. 40 days of Moses on the mountain getting the law, Exodus 24, Exodus 34, gets counteracted by 40 days of Jesus showing us life and showing us grace from the law. Spying out God's land in Numbers 13, it took 40 days and they came back with fear. Jesus takes 40 days and he gives hope. Look at what he's done here. It's so awesome. Um, by the way, and the, the spying in the land leads to 40 years in the wilderness, one year for each day, Numbers 14. 40 days that Goliath taunted Israel. And Jesus is like 40 days of teaching and Bible study. Like he just undoes all of it. I love it. 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. Now it's Jesus in charge. And he's not being tested. He's, he's teaching. 
I, the, the flip here is just wonderful. And if you really want to get lost in the weeds, um, John 2.20, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? And some people could say, well, yeah, um, 46 years to build the temple is 40 years of trial and six years of man. 40 plus six is the trial of man. And Jesus builds up the temple in the number three, which is the number of completion. Yeah, exactly. All the numbers work. So if you like Jewish number stuff, um, Luke's, I think, throwing it in there. I don't know if that's Luke's intent, which is why I say we're getting in the weeds. So I'll get back on my script. Teaching of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So you'd think Jesus would be teaching things for the people to go out and argue, but he's not. He's teaching people how to do church. That's what he spent his 40 days doing, teaching them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. They could have been talking about the Roman Colosseum and how bad it was. They could have been talking about Roman child uh, killing or abortion and how Romans were doing that, but they don't. They talk about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus gives them an alternative to the world as something to focus on and think about. I like that. Now we live in this part of history. I've said that before. Um, I, I should also say about um, this verse that Jesus spent 40 days teaching them things. Gnostics and some people even today, Gnosticism's get on a new revival, is that this was the secret teachings of Jesus. And these are the teachings we don't know about. And I wrote a book for $24.99 that you can buy and because somehow or another I learned the secret teachings of Jesus. Uh, nonsense. This is an intro to the book called Acts. The, the teachings that are about to be taught are exactly what we were taught in the book of Luke, the prior gospel, which Luke always mentioned. Um, so the intro works back, backwards, and I want to point out this, if we want to look carefully at this text instead of secret texts. Um, the church had no money, no leaders, no tools, no internet, no government that um, was on their side. In fact, the government was killing them, and then the church explodes. That alone for me is huge. The intro works backwards. It says, taken up after. He had given past tense commandments. He presented himself live after his suffering. So you see how Luke's kind of working back? Suffering, commandments, taken up. But he goes, taken up, commandments, suffering. So he's giving you this reverse look at Luke from the end of the book backwards. But then he hinges forward in verse 4. The point of the narrative. Jesus' teachings hinge on the next few words, the fact that the church assembled together. And this is a, a big deal. Luke ends on the Mount of Olives. Acts begins on the Mount of Olives. There's an overlap here to show you this. The Holy Spirit's promised at the end of the book of Luke. They're commanded to wait. The Holy Spirit is promised at the beginning of Acts, and they're told to wait. So, And being assembled together becomes then the center thesis point of this book. It's a book about the church. And after the review of Luke and the point of the thing, verse 4, they were assembled together. This is the assembly or the gathering of the saints. If you want to, the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, 28, says, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it, the purpose of the church. From beginning to end, this is about what God's people do together. And I, that, like all I want to know is, okay, tell me, what do I do, Lord? So that makes Acts an open-ended book. You could, you could think that maybe in heaven there'll be a Luke chapter 3 out there, which is like from AD 60 to maybe there's a whole like library of every 10, 12 years Luke's up there writing records of history. Man, that'd be heaven for him. The church and Paul's ministry is what we get 
as a best case, case example. And, and if you haven't been here before when I've talked about best case, every age of the Bible, except for Adam in the garden, every other age of the Bible starts with best case scenario. God gives people the best example he can. Abraham's faith for the age of faith. Moses' law and prophecy for the age of Moses. Aaron's priesthood, best example of a priest. Joshua as the judge for the age of judges. He's the best case scenario as judge. David and Solomon as the king, best case scenario that humanity could ever have is King David. And at each of these phases, they start with best case and they degrade into horrible. And that's what humans do. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, best case scenario for leadership, degrades into the Pharisees of Jesus' first century. And it's like, wow, you guys don't get this like Ezra and Nehemiah did. Jesus, as head of the kingdom of God, assembling together the disciples, this is the best the church age gets. And this is a huge argument for us when people want us to answer for like the history of the church and what evil people have done within the church, right? I'm not here to argue that. I'm here to argue the word of God and what Jesus said we're supposed to do. I'm not here to defend what somebody did 400 years ago that you think is horrible. I'm here to follow what Jesus said to do and the best case example he gave us is the book of Acts. Every church I've ever been to falls short of the ideal, including you guys, this one. We do not match up to this. So one question is, well, we could just feel all bad and sorry for ourselves or shameful, or we could prayerfully and humbly say, how could we take a step towards this? And when the Lord convicts us, we don't get upset about it. We just say, how do we move in that direction? How do we do that? Which means some of you are going to be like, Dickers, well, you got to step up your game and I'll be, I got to humble myself to that. Or we could just skip the book and teach stuff that'll make everybody happy. We'll just stay in, you know, Corinthians. John, we'll just read all the stuff that makes you feel good. Um, verse 4, he commanded them not to depart Jerusalem. First thing is he tells them not to do something. <laughs> just chill. Don't depart, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For truly, John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait, Dickers, what do you mean baptized with the Holy Spirit? Oh, this divides the church everywhere. Can we not divide over this? Can we just read it? Understand what I think Luke was trying to say, but wow, this is whole denominations in verse 4 and 5. Just let's start with that. He commanded, let's start with this. This is a commandment from Jesus. Nothing less. It's a commandment. Well, he's telling the disciples to wait and not depart from Jerusalem. Yeah, but this is best case scenario how a church should operate. You're gathering together. Are we gathering together? Yep, step one taken care of. Are we waiting on the Holy Spirit? Ah, we only got four verses into this book and now I'm stopping for a second going, wait, am I doing that? I don't know about you, but that I want to be more like Jesus and I want to know that. And when Jesus says or commands, but to wait, well, likely the disciples are really excited. Jesus just got resurrected. Likely they are gung-ho. They're ready to take on the world. They got their stuff packed. They got their travel bag, travel fanny packs ready to go. They're set up. They got their hotels reserved. They're deciding who's going to go what direction. They got, their, they got everything set up on their social media ready to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, but wait. Just wait a little bit. Our plans and our enthusiasm, let's admit this, might work against God's plan for our heart to be humbled. If you first get saved and then you go become Billy Graham two days later, who gets the glory for that? You or God? 
Well, God, well, sure thankful that God recruited a very talented person who could just jump right in on day one. But there's some humility that comes too. And this is hard for us. The time of learning, listening, and obeying is central to our walk with Christ. It is not less than, it's the center of it. It's the beginning of. And, and again, that theme is going to come up today. Humility that we can't generate our own ministry plan is a very tough kind of humility. Oh, we got to do this and we got to do that. We should go do this thing. We should do that thing. Those of you who've been here a long, we've heard this before, haven't we? And it's enthusiasm. And, and the enthusiasm is wonderful. And Jesus is like, the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Has Jesus told us to go do that thing? Or is that just your great idea? Is that your new shiny that we should chase after? Because if it's your new shiny, I'm not as interested in it as if it's God's thing that God wants to do. But wait upon the Lord. The promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit is promised, but it's given from the Father through the voice of Jesus Christ. What do we see there? The Trinity. This is, the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. But Luke presents it as though it is the same thing. So if the promise comes from the Father and the Holy Spirit something that promised, the question is, does God keep his promises? Does he have a good track record? And he's given us two-thirds of the Bible called the Old Testament to show us his track record on keeping promises. So just because you have a believer who has not experienced the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit does not mean that that does not happen and that God has not promised it. The question for me is, wait, I want that. How do I get that? What is that? And please explain. Well, well, we have a whole book. Difference between religion and a relationship is the ability to trust in the promises of the person. I might have a relationship with you, but not trust you. Right? I might have a religion, but then I'm not putting my trust in anything but the religion. And Jesus, I think this idea, this combination is there's a promise from the Father. We're not supposed to just have a religion that we trust in. We're supposed to have a relationship with a Father that we trust in. We trust in his promises, not the promises of the church. You know, and so this idea that religion trusts in the precepts, and at the end of the day, religion requires a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. But a relationship does not require a leap of faith. A relationship requires experience with the person in which you put your trust. If you don't have that, wait on it. It doesn't mean you're not saved. Nothing Jesus, he's not talking to the unsaved people here. He's talking to the people he's chosen. And he's just saying, wait for it. There's nothing wrong with waiting for this calling that you get. You shall be baptized. The language is not particular. Jesus actually presents two baptisms, a water baptism with John and a Holy Spirit baptism with the Spirit. So two words that are being used. Bapto is a quick dip or a touch. You get baptized with water, you're just getting touched with water. It's a symbol to all your friends of who, you're gonna, who's, who you've chosen to follow. A water baptism is our communication to the people around us and to God himself that we're making a vow. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is God saying, okay, I'm ready to use you. And they're very different purposes in the, Holy, in, in the walk of faith that we have. One showing our intent to serve, one showing God's response or his intent to use us. Can you go through your whole life, be saved and on your way to heaven and never have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's a good question, isn't it? We'll talk about that afterwards. I'm not going to answer it. This is a tough set of spiritual ideas. He says, not many days from now. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't tell them how long this is going to take. Wouldn't it have been nice if 37 days, or actually, let's say 40 days after your water baptism, you get a baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
And if it doesn't happen on day 40, you know something broke. But Jesus doesn't say that. He just says, not many days. It won't take long. You're going to feel some changes in your life. You're going to see some changes in your life. Therefore, verse 6. Oh, I should say this too. Baptism gets people messed up too, right? So that, by the way, verse 5 is also something that divides whole de denominations, right? What, how do you do baptism? When do you do baptism? What is baptism for and what does it look like? Can you be saved with or without baptism? We'll just go to verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? This was the whole book of Luke. They misunderstood his first coming. And so at this, I think this is a great, sincere question. They, they're kind of like, okay, now do we overtake the Romans? And they have this renewed hope. They have this renewed life. And they fall back on what they understood about their walk of, with Christ from before they saw the resurrection. Have you ever met Christians like this? They get saved. They commit their life to Jesus Christ. But they're not open to learning about the walk. They interpret everything they read based on what they understood about the walk before they were saved. So all this church hurt and images of faith and media impressions keep coming in. And the disciples, praise God, make that mistake and are humble enough to record it. I love this. They, they record their mistake that they believed wrongly after they saw the resurrection that Jesus was here to build an earthly kingdom. And they're expecting a political Israel, a political Messiah that will rule and define an era. And this is not an unbiblical belief because half of the prophecies about Jesus are about him coming to reign on earth. And so the question is, is this the second coming? Also in verse 6, these questions are, were able to ask it and I, when they had come together. It wasn't an individual poking Jesus with a question. It was when they were gathered as a church that it was a place where they could ask those questions. I hate to use the word safe space because it's been politically charged. But when God's people come together, that should be a place we can ask the tough questions and not pounce on each other and not just gang tackle each other. Nobody, you don't hear James shouting at whoever asked this question. You hear Jesus respond to the question. And, they, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You don't get to know the answer to that question. Wow. Wow. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Guess what? You don't get to know when I'm going to build my earthly kingdom. But there's going to be some really cool stuff you get to do in the meantime. You guys are going to see the world. And you're going to bring the name of Jesus all over the place. You're going to be ambassadors that proclaim the message so everybody can hear it. Actually, this takes care of a number of issues the early church has. And, and Jesus is like that. He just smashes hot-button issues. When he says it's not for you to know, ultimately, God has some things revealed to humanity and some things that are not. And you have to be okay with that. When I, when, a lot of times when you're evangelizing a non-believer, they'll come at you with like really particular things that they've spent hours looking at. And they'll jump on you with some obscure verse out of concept and say, well, haven't you seen this one verse? And I think as believers, it's okay for us to be like, dang, no, I haven't seen that one. Can you give me a week to go do some homework? And if they're not wait, willing to wait, then they're probably not sincere about the question. They're just trying to gang tackle a Christian. But for believers to be told right up front, so you don't know the times or the seasons which the followers put in his own authority. 
the idea that a resurrected Jesus is still limited in his form after the resurrection is he's still distinct from the Father in some ways. I think that's really interesting. Hey, I'm incarnate right now. I'm a limited version of God that you're talking to. But the Father in heaven, you're always going to have that connection point. We don't always have an incarnate Jesus in front of us. We always have God the Father and a Holy Spirit to communicate with. I think that's great. But there's the Trinity again. The Father's authority, the Spirit's power, and Jesus' example that he's bearing witness to. So we just see it two times now at the beginning of Acts. And then this, but you shall receive power. Whoa! What power? What does this power look like? So they ask about the kingdom of Israel, and Jesus says to, why don't you focus on your jobs? What is the power? How does it manifest? And that's the entire book of Acts. Like, this is the thesis statement at the beginning of the book. We will see God's power played out for the next 28 chapters. So if you have a question, what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit's power upon you? We're going to see a lot of stories that you might resonate with or not resonate with. And what we do know from the book of Acts is that that power comes on different disciples in different ways. It looks different for everybody. So for any gathering of people, what's most important is that they have come together, they have gathered, and they are told, just wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you before you start doing some ministries. That means we can gather and come together for a long time and have people that have not had the Holy Spirit come upon them. That doesn't mean you don't gather and you don't come together. Obedience to God is the beginning of this process. Peter was already told, God told him, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's already heard from the Holy Spirit, but the teaching in 7 and 8 is he's supposed to wait until the Holy Spirit has come upon him. Okay, that's different words. He has heard from the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit being experienced next to me, outside of me. Elijah heard a still small voice right behind his ear, right? The Holy Spirit's here adjacent to me and I can interact with it. Unbelievers can be pulled by the Holy Spirit to come into the kingdom. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is upon them or in them. So Peter has this experience with the Holy Spirit prior to this passage and Jesus points out that there are these nudges. He teaches them how to listen to the Holy Spirit. You're gonna, there's going to be these things where God's word comes to mind because God puts his word into your heart. That's the Holy Spirit. Like our flesh doesn't put Bible verses into our head at the right moment. And so recognize that, understand that God's Holy Spirit is not dominating like a demonic spirit. It is aligning and building and encouraging and instructing. If you have a spirit of fear about something and then you say, well, the Holy Spirit's making me worry and fear. I'm sorry, the book of Acts is going to deny that. That is not the Holy Spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. There is a definition of the character and nature of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see three different relationships that we have. Get ready to write this down, note takers. There is the word para, which means with or beside the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was beside me and I heard something. There is the word en or pimpleme. Pimpleme. It means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I got the Holy Spirit in me, not next to me. And then there's a third word that we're going to see, which is epi or epikomai, which means pouring out of me. The Holy Spirit was just oozing out of this character. And you're going to see it. They're going to be like, they called Paul and Barnabas like gods because there's like a, they radiated something. And they're just, 
People can see the Holy Spirit in Christians when it pours out of Christians. But Christians can be filled with the Holy Spirit and other people don't see it. Do you see the differences? Like this to me is just... So Peter had been taught how to listen to the still small voice that was para or with him, but he was also told to wait upon the power being upon him. In this verse, the word there is epi. Okay? Witnesses. They're commanded from Jesus to bear witness. Do you need to be, like, if you are not bearing witness to Christ, you are not following the commands of Christ. So when somebody asks you about Jesus or the topic of God comes up, you should start praying quickly, which is what we'll see the disciples do. Oh, game's on. I need to be ready to give a defense of my God because I'm an ambassador of my God. And so some of the, again, we're only in the first few verses. Verse 4, to wait. It's not for us to know when or how God will work, verse 7, and then we're going to be witnesses. Know that that's the plan. What's God's calling for my life? Okay, let's make this really easy. His calling for your life is to bear witness to him. Everywhere you go with everybody you meet. That's the plan. It's really simple. Bear witness to me. We are not Jehovah's Witnesses. We're Jesus' witnesses. Does that, like there's a difference. And so to bear witness to Jesus is a different than having to bear witness to the Trinity. And the instructions here, again, I don't think there's mistakes here. It's very clear instructions. To bear witness to Jesus, the resurrection, and what that means. That is salvation from sin for every person on the earth, even us Gentiles. He also explains where they're supposed to do it. This is all introduction. They're going to start in Jerusalem. They're going to sped to Judea, even Samaria, with those people you don't like. And then it's going to get to the whole earth. So, hey, disciples, here's the plan. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's where you're supposed to do it. And even the when, you don't get to know when, but it's when the Holy Spirit hits you. That's, it, it's going to come upon you, epi in the Greek. It's going to, you are going to know when the time is. Jerusalem at this time is openly hostile to Jesus' followers. They just killed Jesus. That's going to be the first place you start. Not going to be an easy start, church. And then you're going to go to Samaria where they don't really like you at all just because you're Jewish. That's going to be even harder. And then you're going to go to the whole ends of the world where you have Romans and Germanic barbanic hordes, the Huns. It's not a friendly world out there. Headhunters, things like that. The world is Rome to them, but they had to know there was hostility out there in the world. So at the end of Luke, you get the departure and the ascension. We get that here. Verse 9, no one had spoke these things while they watched. He was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards or into heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. We don't get their names. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is an odd little passage, isn't it? What does this teach us? You get a sense that the cloud is active here, right? The cloud received him, like the cloud moved. It wasn't like a big cumulus cloud that we see. There was a cloud that was something and it meant something to them. The way it's phrased, it reflects the Shekinah glory. We first saw that in Exodus 29 when it landed on the tabernacle. We saw it before that when it led people out of Egypt. Like the cloud is a thing in the history of the Old Testament. It keeps showing up at different places. Leaving from Olivet, Ezekiel 11:23 prophesied that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city 
and took upon the mountain, which is the east side of the city, that would be all of it where these guys are standing. Afterwards, the spirit took me up. Ezekiel prophesied this would be how the Messiah would be taken up. And, and again, notice the language here. He could have just vanished. Like he could have done a special effect on like a TV show and just, he could have like popped. There's a lot of ways God could have chosen to end his incarnate form. He could have shriveled up and would bleep. Like it could have been a lot of different cool things, but it wasn't any of those things. It was, and, and this fits like a glove, he was taken up exactly like Ezekiel said it would happen. So to be taken up is to be lifted or raised by an exterior force. Something took Jesus. And then it says to be received, which means to be raised from something that comes underneath you. So he's taken up from something outside of him, and then he is received, which is to be taken up in the Greek, from something underneath or supporting him. Luke uses, again, surgical language here. He ascends, he doesn't vanish. He's received, he doesn't disappear. He is, their view of him is blocked. It is not that he ever goes away. I think this is interesting. That means Jesus, the incarnate form, no one saw the incarnate form go away. A cloud blocked their view. Read the language very carefully. Right? He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. What took them out of the sight? The cloud blocked them. The cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus is still alive. This marks 40 days of instruction prior to the church age. Holy Spirit is now our link to God. We don't, we have, we, our view of Jesus is blocked. It doesn't mean Jesus isn't still active, showing up to people, doing things on the earth. Because if you look at Christophanes, throughout the Old Testament, you have the, the Messiah, the unnamed Jesus, showing up and instructing and teaching and guiding people. The Holy Spirit is not the incarnate form of God, and this is the tool that, that Jesus leaves us with. Notice what the angels say. Behold, like this is totally captivating. This is a life-altering, glorious event. This sends 11 guys to their death, except for John. He lives a, a 10 guys to their death, and John lives to a ripe old age, a vacation retirement kind of thing. They're watching this in their head long after it's over with. They've seen something. And then the, the two angels, I think they might be the same two that were at the tomb because they asked a similar question in Luke 24, 5. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? So I think this is their sense of humor. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? So why are you looking at the dead things and thinking you're going to get life from there? Why are you looking at the things you can't see and thinking you're going to get things from that? And I think there's a narrow path between those two things. Instead of standing around looking for somebody that's not visible, how about you go love him and go do what he says? He's given commands. If you love Jesus, don't just stand around waiting for the return. Move around and go do the things he's commanded us until he comes back. And so Luke sets a tone here with this. We can look at the dead or we can look at the heavens. We're commanded to witness to other people. Practical, right on earth sorts of things. If we're not drawing people to Jesus, we need to do some work on ourselves because there should be something magnetic about us that brings people to Jesus. Bringing the dead into spiritual life, we build a kingdom of God and a church of living, alive people following a living, alive Christ that we simply can't see for a little bit. And when he comes back, he's going to come back the same way that the two angels say, in like manner. He will be physical again. He will be visible again. And we also know from other passages, he'll show up in Jerusalem again. Same manner, same place. So in the meantime, build a church. So here we go, verse 12. 
Then they returned. Notice it's they. It's not Peter lead, led them to. It's they returned. They're a group. To Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. They go right back to the city that just killed Jesus 40 days ago. A Sabbath day's journey, 43 days ago, sorry. Uh, a Sabbath day's journey means you can walk so far before you're breaking Sabbath. In other words, it's just a few minutes. You go down. If we go to Jerusalem, you'll see it. You go down the hill and up the hill, and you're in the new city. And when they entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, not the other Judas. That is 11 names. These are all counted with one accord in prayer and supplication. By the way, I like these all continued with one accord. I think that's another good t-shirt line. You know, they continued with one accord. With the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his, his brothers. So his brothers that, well, we'll get into it. They returned to Jerusalem. Jesus told them where to start. They actually obey. If you want to see the Holy Spirit come into your life, start by obeying what Jesus says. Most, most Christians can't even get that part down. They're still wrestling with what the world tells them to do and what Jesus tells them to do. And they're fighting this battle that goes on for decades. Stop it. Do what Jesus says to do. And get over it. Jesus isn't physically with them, but they love him and they're going to obey him and they're going to act as if he's right there. And as if he's in the room with them. We pray like that. Lord, if we're together, you promised you'd be with us. So Luke starts with a list, an accounting of the gospel. A lot of this in the Old Testament, a lot of whole chapter lists like we're going to hit tonight in Nehemiah. This list takes a sentence, 11 people, plus all the women, the brothers of, of, of Jesus are there. The word women there in the Greek is gyne. It's the root word for gynecology. It, it means plurality. There's a bunch of women there. It could just be, and one interpretation in the Greek is, with all of their wives. Like there's a woman component to each of these guys. Uh, which is an interesting translation. I don't know if that's what Luke's trying to say here. I think he's trying to say there's a whole group of women that are following Jesus too. And they're there at the beginning. The mother of Jesus and the brothers back in John 7, 5 were not supportive of Jesus' ministry. Like, Jesus, you're going to get yourself killed. At this point, they're immediately there. And to me, that's a piece of evidence. The fact that, you know, if my sister told me she was God Almighty, I don't know if I'd believe my sister on that. I would struggle with that argument. And the, when, when one's siblings believe you are God, something happened there. When one's mom doesn't see through a farce, but the mom's there ready to worship and serve her resurrected son, there is a conversion here that I think is miraculous. It's exceptional. That immediately, as immediate family thought that he was the to be worshipped as God. Why? Does Jesus make them wait for the power of the Holy Spirit? They have all the pieces. They're gathering together. They're worshiping God. They're praying and they're obeying God as they do it. And Jesus just took them on a 40-day Bible retreat. They got all the pieces that are the core pillars of the church. Why did God make them wait for the Holy Spirit? And I, Again, this is a great kind of debate and discussion to have. It says they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They all pray. They all continue to pray. And they all make this a pattern. They're always arguing in the Gospels, but miraculously, after this 40 days, they're of one accord. Think about that. Where in the four Gospels were the disciples ever of one accord? 
They bicker all the time. Something has changed them just like the immediate family. There is no recording in any of the Gospels of, of the, the phrase one, of, one accord being associated with the disciples. This is a first use, surprisingly. Only, the only place you see one accord is when Jesus taught a parable in Luke 14, 18 that says they all with one accord began to make excuses. <laughs> That's the only thing they got in common. How many churches have you seen where you walk in and everybody's just making excuses together? They come together and make excuses with one accord. That is not the church I want. I want the church of Acts. It's used 11 times in the book of Acts in the positive sense. Something has changed immediately with these people. This is an earmark. It starts with unity in prayer with the God's people gathering together. The word one accord is actually a single word. It's compound. Homa thumadon. It's the, the putting together of these two words. You're going to love this. It's the compound word of together, fierce. That's what it means. One passion, one mind, not passive. Oh, we're all of one accord. We're sitting in a circle holding hands, singing Kumbaya. That's not the one accord we're talking about. I love that one accord, by the way. I'm a sucker for that one accord. But that's not the one accord. It's together, fierce. They're ready. They're revved up. They're on fire. They're together, fierce. Absolute, complete unanimity over this thing. They're of one mind to continue to follow Jesus. The other thing is one accord. There's an adverb, right? So there is a word in the Greek that is not translated in my Bible. I want to read this sentence again. These all continued, mystery word, with one accord in prayer and supplication. If you look at this up in the Greek, you're just going to have a, a word there, and it's a big word, proskartereo, if I'm saying it right. It means persistence or ongoing. And I don't know why they wouldn't put that in there. The, the idea that they're persistent, and then you have the idea of one accord, explains the persistence. It's a way to, what we might in the English say, they continued to continue, right? They were adhering steadfastly to the perseverance of what they're about to do. They're together fierce, and they're continuing to be together fierce. These all continued to give their persistent attention with absolute unanimity to prayer characterized by its definiteness of purpose, according to Worst. Worst, if you've never read it, or West, or W... W-U-E-S-T. I don't even want to say it. But what they do is they do a version of the Greek that's the full meaning of each word. And so you get these big, long sentences. But that's the sentence in, in, in the original Greek. These all continued to give their persistent attention with absolute unanimity to prayer, characterized by the definiteness of its purpose. Doesn't that change the meaning of the sentence? So one accord about what? It's, an adver it's, it's explaining something. They're in one accord about this idea that they're going to pray. And they're fierce about it. And I think of this and I think, man, when you meet prayer warriors and they're like, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for this. When I was a new believer, I was like, dude, you with your praying. Like, enough already. Pray about everything. But on this, they're in agreement. Oh, yeah, we pray about everything. That's what we do here. We can't underestimate how important prayer is for the church. You want to see the Holy Spirit come upon the church? Gather together. Show up. If you want to see the Spirit of God come upon the church, obey Jesus. Be with Him. You want to see the Spirit of God come upon the church? Pray like you're fierce about it. Pray for it.
Without the Holy Spirit, there is nothing to tune into. There's no conductor. There is no uniformity of humanity without us all tuning into Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. If we're all tuned into Jesus Christ, we have one accord. If we're not all praying fiercely, we don't have one accord. We have disagreements and arguments and pettiness and people you like and people you don't like. The cookies that I get to eat that I stole from you, all of that sort of thing gets to be an issue. But that no word that doesn't get added, proskartero, that persistence about it, man, that speaks to me. Prayer in the, is speaking to God. Supplication is entreating or giving our needs to God. Some of the early Greek versions do not have the word supplication in that sentence. So that idea of prayer alone is one that is in some of the versions. They wait upon, and part of the waiting for the Holy Spirit is the praying. They're not separate. The waiting isn't to sit and do nothing until Jesus shows up. Well, I haven't got a calling, so I'm going to watch my psych episode tonight. That's not what's going on here. The waiting has everything to do with the doing, the praying, the core of the church. No sparkles, no miracles, no power, no you know surviving snake bites. The real church at its core is a body of people serving Jesus Christ in obedience together in prayer. It's that simple. The thing with humanity is we want more than that. We think it should be more elaborate and more fancy. So why am I not with the Holy Spirit? Why don't I hear the Holy Spirit? Why am I there? These are good questions. Are you obedient to what Jesus said? Are you faithful in gathering with the saints? Who are you in prayer with? I think Sunday school just got over. To degrade the church is to, if I'm the enemy of the church and I want to wreck this initial vision, Here's all I got to do. This is the simple demonic plan for wrecking a church. I erode the obedience to God and I let humans question particulars about his law. Well, I agree with this and I don't agree with that. And I, I agree with this apostle, but I don't agree with this person. Peter's right. Paul's wrong. Just get them to pick and choose. Make it an unreachable thing. It, make excuses for gathering together. Make it optional. And if anything or anyone makes demands on anything, just skip it. It's not that important. So if you want to erode the power of the church and take away the Holy Spirit, have them question their obedience to God and redefine what holiness is on their own view, the original sin. Have them make excuses about gathering and just skip whenever they feel like it. And then turn praying into something that's rote, disingenuous, non-original, repetitive. That's how you destroy the church. Ephesians 4, 2, and I'll end on this. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even if you're called in hope, even as you are called in hope to your calling. Isn't that beautiful? And doesn't when you read the beginning of Acts, doesn't that light this up? I'm going to read it one more time. Ephesians 4, 2. With all lowliness and meekness, we're not here to be champions. We're here to be servants. With long-suffering, I'm going to wait as long as Jesus tells me to. To forbearing one another, I'm going to put up with Tom every single week. I pick you, Tom, because you're the most likable guy I know. Forbearing one another in love. Love's a choice. It's not a feeling. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Man, this is something we should pursue and go after in the bond of peace. Stuff comes up, we deal with it. There is one body and one spirit, 
even as you're called into hope of your calling, even as you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon your life and give you your mission, there is one body to be part of, one Holy Spirit to follow. Individuals are not the body of Christ. And this is a thing in America. We're an individualistic society. We're also materialistic as a society. We're also pretty like fetish oriented. We also like TV shows that we probably shouldn't be watching. We also put stuff on the screen that should have no business in front of the eyes of children and we bring our kids to it. We do a lot of things wrong. It doesn't mean it's right. The body of Christ, individuals are not the body of Christ. We continue on together and we continue persistently in prayer, steadfastly resolved, fervent about it because it's the most important thing we can possibly do. Gather together, obey Christ, start to pray more. Is that enough? Like we could just go a few years on working on those things, right? Book of Acts, it's just going to line it up. Next week, how to make decisions. And, and honestly, they draw straws. Like, <laughs> like, I got the notes here, but I think we're running out of time with the kids upstairs. So we'll, we'll pick up in verse 15 next week. Uh, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the blessings that you have. Uh, Lord, help us to humbly come before your word. And I thank you for Luke. I thank you for this recording. What would the Bible be out like without the book of Acts? We just wouldn't have a connection between the Gospels and the Epistles. We wouldn't see what the church looks like. We just wouldn't get that view. And Lord, as we get that view, and you've given it to us, I just pray that we learn how to obey it. We learn how to submit to it. And Lord, we learn how to have one accord as a body. Uh, just so important that we love one another and we learn how to do that effectively. Lord, help us to be um, your hands and feet and we start with each other. This is the practice ground, Lord. Help us to do that right here as we eat lunch today and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, 